0: Hi, my name is Kai Shea your host of Budding Taste. This is a podcast dedicated to examining diet and nutrition of everyday people from a cultural, historical, and culinary perspective. If you are curious about how people think about healthy eating and the ways in which it fits into their everyday lives, then this is the podcast for you. Hello, everybody. I hope you are well today. We are going to introduce you to a very special guest today. His name is Jose Pozas. He lives in New Orleans uh, and is a child of immigrants. He is half Filipino and half Honduran, and he is a sports neurologist. Grew up in New Orleans, and he is here to talk to us about the food culture of New Orleans, which I really, really love. I think the food of New Orleans is very special and has its u- unique culinary flavors and cooking techniques and tradition so we'll talk about that with him but also interestingly to hear from him about being a sports neurologist and what healthy eating might look like uh, working on a professional level so let's hear from him and also if you have not subscribe to or follow the podcast please do so if you're enjoying these episodes so today i have a very special guest uh jose uh posas he is coming to us from new orleans a wonderful city with amazing food um and uh jose do you want to tell the listeners who you are um you know what you do where you're from Um, Just a little bit about uh, your background. Yeah. um, Thank you, Todd, for
1: having me. I'm I'm Jose Posis. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm a sports (coughs) neurologist. Um, I work at Oshner Health. uh, And so part of what I do uh, is program director uh, for the residency. So I'm involved in education. But as a sports neurologist, I think about not only how we can keep athletes healthy after injury and concussion, but I also try to think about how we can help keep the uh, population healthy. Somebody who's not necessarily a a competitive athlete healthy. And part of that ends up actually being diet and thinking about what people eat. You know, unfortunately, and this is sort of the the PSA segment of of what I talk about new Orleans and and much of the American South is in what's called the stroke belt. Um, Our outcomes due to things like hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol are worse compared to places like Colorado, New York, Chicago, etc. And, and eating healthily can be difficult in, in a place with food this rich, which is my sort of tongue-in-cheek moment saying, I acknowledge that the food we have down here is too salty, too fatty, <laughs> too good. So a lot of times my, I cancel my patients about moderation uh, and, and adding some exercise in
0: there. You go, you do have very good food down there, I have to say. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good. Uh, a little bit about your personal life. Do you have children? Like, are you? Yeah, uh, yeah. So I have two wonderful
1: daughters, um, right. a seven year old and a five year old. My my yeah. eldest actually just got uh, the the lead villain role in the Lion King play, <laughs> so she's going to be Scar. <laughs> nice. Um, and the youngest one just started piano lessons, so that's very exciting.
0: So usually I I like to start the podcast just kind of asking, you know, if something you ate today, I guess, where you are right now, it's early, like, what's kind of like a usual breakfast for you?
1: Unfortunately, because of my busy schedule, usual breakfast for me is coffee. We try to do, (laughs) um, you know, every once in a while, i try to treat myself. So I, I don't know if you've heard of Civet Cat Coffee. Have you heard of this? Uh, uh, I, I have,
0: but I think uh, our listeners might be interested to hear. Yeah, so is. this is going to sound super gross, and I'm, apo-
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm already apologetic. I will state, first off, this is delicious, right? Like, don't knock it till you try it, and if you okay. can try it, good for you, because it's rare. Uh-huh. Um, Civic Cat Coffee, l- let me just put it out there. There's a cat called the Civic <laughs> Cat. The range right. is in Southeast Asia. Um, this particular brand that i have the civic cats are wild they're not farmed um, but they're in the philippines in the mountains usually in the south particularly in a mountain called mount Apo. a-p-o and the cats eat the coffee beans they digest them they're proteolytic enzymes that break down some of the acidity make it a little bit more neutral more flavorful etc and they poop it out and then somebody finds their droppings they wash them thoroughly promise and then okay. they roast them and they do all the things you do to coffee and my goodness it's it's a delight um the cafe or the civet cat coffee as it's otherwise known
0: that sounds like a very um tedious process is it, is it like expensive is it like a pricey coffee it i am
1: a bit bougie it is it is expensive i will say that uh-huh. some of the cost is cut because i have cousins in the philippines so i'm Half Filipino, half Honduran. And when uh-huh. my cousins come from the Philippines to come visit, they they typically will be super duper nice. Uh, Filipinos have a culture of gifting. So they will bring me a
0: gift of uh civet cat coffee. Uh,
1: and it's it's one of my
0: favorite things. Oh my God. I'm a huge coffee drinker. And I've actually um like just this morning I like grind my beans, I put in my oh, yeah. espresso maker um but i've never had civic cat coffee i i know what it is what can you buy it in the u.s
1: you can um (laughs) so so my cousins bring it to me you can buy it online in terms of actual (sighs) coffee shops that have it like i don't i haven't ever seen it at whole foods uh Uh for example in terms of national coverage if you have a smaller more boutique coffee shop perhaps they have uh, a line on it but um it, wow. It's not mass produced. It's not you know. Starbucks wow. is not coming out with a civet cat coffee line yeah, yeah, that yeah, you can yeah,
0: buy yeah. at the local uh,
1: Publix yeah, or yeah. or whatever.
0: I mean, you, you need these cats to. to you need the cats. Him, yeah, and it out, and that's um, right. And are these like domestic cats or are these like um, the wild cats? In, in the Philippines, these are
1: wild cats um they're not you know farm raised they just they have a specific range in an area and um you know literally like how people walk around after them in the sort of mountainside jungles of the philippines i mean malaysia and indonesia etc etc
0: yeah wow no i i think that's so cool because it's i mean it it, it's kind of like fermentation you know it's like yes yeah 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 yeah. yeah. it's like you're you're putting it through this process where it kind of Needs to be digested a little. I mean, that's what fermentation is. It's like bacteria digesting stuff.
1: Um, yeah, you're 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 putting it through the the um, the acidic and basic changes that occur in the gut naturally of this cat, and right. also the cat has a symbiotic relationship with the bacteria, right, and it right. makes this flavor yeah, yeah change, yeah. which is incredible.
0: You mentioned that you were um, half Filipino, half Honduras. The the first part is kind of learning about growing up and what uh eating was like and um types of dishes and kind of food memories that you had um in your family when you were growing up Do you want to you know kind of tell us about that yeah yeah um
1: thanks for that question so you know in Honduras the the sort of staple foods are actually overlap a little bit with uh, Filipino food right rice is a staple um and then the 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 variance comes in that in honduras there's a type of tortilla um that is like a lard based tortilla it's a little bit thicker um the chew on it is different than like a a plain flour tortilla and they do something called baleadas down there so in honduras baleadas it's a typical food that someone would eat before going out in the field. It's highly dense and caloric. It's got uh-huh. beans in there. There's queso fresco, like a like a fresh cheese. Um, and you put it over a uh, tortilla, and then you put mantequilla on it, a little butter. And it's got the calories that you need to go work in the, in the field with the cows all day. Um, okay. But that is something that Hondurans have brought from Honduras. And actually, the second largest population of Hondurans is in the greater New Orleans area a region of oh. the city called Kenner which is uh-huh. its own sort of suburb of New Orleans. And there's a lot of great Honduran food that's nice. burgeoning here in the New Orleans uh, food scene. Nice. Um, and then the Filipino food growing up, there wasn't like, you couldn't like go out to a Filipino restaurant that I knew of. It was all families, but uh-huh. things like chicken adobo, um, things like kare kare, which is like oxtail, right. um, you know, and, and uh, lechon is like the big celebratory thing. Yeah. But that's not something that's a standard like, hey, we're uh-huh. going to have this. It's it's a Thursday. Let me just whip up some lechon real quick. That's a laborious, <laughs> yeah. big process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a celebration type process. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, you were born in the U.S.? I was born in Manila, actually. Um, oh, and okay. then immigrated to the U.S. when I was super duper young. That's a family where, you know, one side is Filipino and one side is Honduran. What, like, how did the, what was the food like? Was it like one day was it a mishmash or was it like American? Was it like one day Honduran, the next day Filipino? Great, great question. And the answer may be a little disappointing, right? Uh-huh. So
1: every once in a while we'd get Honduran or Filipino food, but because okay. in the early eighties and nineties, the, marching orders from my parents was hey assimilate and Uh, they were sort of told you need to assimilate then more often than not we got american food fortunately for me american food in new orleans tastes better than american food that's in 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 other parts of the country right so um, assimilation meant red beans and rice it Uh meant collard greens Uh you know it meant fried oysters It meant, you know, (laughs) redfish caught in the Gulf, et cetera, et cetera, that Uh kind of stuff. Right. So those Uh were the sort of little adventures we take within our Uh assimilation process. But yeah, I think that's something people don't talk about is that you're at least of a certain generation of immigrants. Like you're told you
0: better fall in line. Right. And that's hard. I mean, that certainly is true for me. I mean, I came to the U S pretty young too. And I would say like most people in my generation, you know, you don't want to stick out. You want to assimilate. So even though there were, you know, like we ate a lot of Asian food, but at the same time, we had to learn how to eat, you know, American food at the same time.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll share with you the first time that I brought a, a pretty ethnic Filipino dish for to school was also the last time.
0: <laughs> kids,
1: kids can be merciless. It, it was something I still yeah. think is delicious, but I got so many weird looks and a couple of audible
0: ears. And I was just like, I don't want to deal with that. Right, yeah, so. no, I, I, dis- I actually discussed this with my last podcast guest, Kathy Irway, um, and about growing up. She was also kind of biracial. She's biracial. She's half white, half Taiwanese. But I also uh, talked to her about, like, going to school with the icky lunchbox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I kind of had a similar experience as that as well. Um, So at, at home, like, did you guys, were there cooking either your parents cook or was it mostly um, kind of sourcing your food from different yummy places in New Orleans? Uh, It was a mix of both. Both parents worked. Um, Uh So because my dad
1: was a medical resident in the 80s where they didn't have like the the duty hours, like you can't now modern day, you can't work more than eight hours a week. Back Uh then it was not uncommon to not see your family for like three days in a row. Frequently, our, our, my mom would like, you know, mac and cheese or red beans and rice or, or whatever she could get at the store. And then every right. once in a while when dad was home, yes, we'd, we'd get the neighbor who had made a big pot of adobo to come over and, like, do whatever, right? right? So there were little ethnic enclaves that we could sort of lean on for community. But right. more often than not, it was just us figuring out American food. And, and yeah. again,
0: luckily, it was yeah. New Orleans American food. Was it, Were there, like, meal rituals? Like, did you guys eat together? Or, like, would you guys certain things that us, you know, like Sunday nights, we all have to eat together. Was, it, was there like a structure or ritual to, to, to how you were eating when you were growing up?
1: Yeah. So meals were always together. We'd always sit and talk uh-huh. and we wouldn't have to sit there and continuously shovel food in our mouths until everyone was done. But the idea was we would talk about our day and, and see how things are doing. So that the, the idea, basically by the time I got to college the idea of people just kind of eating their food in their room alone was just so foreign to me, and I was like, "Wow, I guess people have all sorts of different ways to do things, but not not in my family."
0: Yeah, you know, when I went to college, I had the same kind of discovery: was that it's not uncommon in "quote unquote" the American family where you don't eat together at the table. <laughs> you know, people kind of took their which food. to me
1: is wild. You know, I'll, I'll say this: my my kids, we raised them. In terms of mealtime, like especially with dinner, hey, let's sit and talk about our day. And we have what we call the questions. And the question can be what's your favorite part of the day? What are you most looking forward to? What was a struggle that you had today? What was an act of kindness that you showed? The, the sort of no matter what the meal is, um, we try to talk.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. So, one question I have for my guests is like, were there ideas of how you should or should not eat what's healthy or not healthy in your upbringing? Yeah, so I'll I'll say <laughs> that
1: in my family growing up, you know, again, I, I think this is not uncommon. But the immigrant mindset, like, don't waste that food. You, you better clear your plate because yeah. otherwise, it's a waste. And if you waste that food, you're you're taking the hard work that we've had and all the struggles and sacrifice, and you're literally throwing it in the trash. That wasn't ever said, but it was heavily implied, and that was sort yeah. of culturally the expectation. so growing up my relationship with food was you better eat everything on that damn plate the idea here is trying to have that fix of relationship with food with my kids and say hey eat eat till your tummy's happy and then if you don't want to eat it fine but also at the same time don't fill your plate completely with a bunch of stuff like Eat right. something and then figure right. out, hey, how do I feel? Drink some water. So, you know, that's not something I was necessarily advised growing up. So that's a difference, you know, right. generationally. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't think that's unique, but that's something that I'm being conscious about for the next generation.
0: Yeah. Do your parents ever put set limitations or, you know, like try to make these certain things and not others? But they're.
1: Yeah. The, the, again, the crazy thing about growing up in the south in the 80s and 90s is that you know you have all the influx of the commercial enterprises of oh yeah this is low oh, yeah. fat or this is low oh, sugar yeah. yep. so yep. the the yo-yo between fat yep. is good fat is bad sugar is good sugar is bad yep. definitely yep. for the american food side was was difficult the right. the reasonable thing though or the good thing is that Chicken adobo still tastes awesome, and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're you're not gonna not serve that with rice. So you know right. that that remains like you're saying that's a generational thing that is right. going right. to withstand the the test of commercial appeal and 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 what the media is trying to sell you uh, in oh, the supermarket.
0: Ab- oh, absolutely. Do you think like in in Honduran culture or in Filipino culture they have ideas of healthy eating specifically to their cultures i think
1: at least the the way i understand it from when i've sort of talked to my dad and and his brothers and my aunts and and my grandfather you're you're eating as a fuel to go work hard right Right. and if you're not working hard hey maybe don't have that fourth baleata because each of these like fatty lard tacos is you know thousand plus calories right like maybe hold back a little bit Right. Um, I did have one uncle who died, unfortunately, in December of 2020. Right. That was morbidly obese, and even though he was no longer a young man, like out in the fields managing cows, like on horseback, yeah. he was in a pickup truck. Right. He still would put down like five right. or six of those those heavy, fatty, you know, right. baleadas in the morning, right. and, and that led to an early grave. Unfortunately, I, I do yeah. miss him, but yeah. it, it's one of those things where. Yeah. His, his mandate was, this is super good. I should eat more. Um, Yeah. Why not? Right. (laughs) Yeah. I I have the, I have the means and I have the capability. Uh, Some is good. More is better.
0: Do you have any, uh, any specific food memories you want to share? Like any like particular dishes that you loved as a kid growing up, any like food uh, events even that, um, you can think of that—that that you really enjoy. There,
1: there's like a ton. Um, wow. So I'll—I'll I'll say this: food growing up as a kid. Uh-huh. The first time I bit into a beignet, and the dust sprayed up and hit my face. That's like a core memory <laughs> for me, right? Like the visceral, like—I uh-huh. mean, the taste, whatever. It's pretty good, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's a food event, yeah. and that's—that's that's something that I find a common thread to. Southern New Orleans cuisine, right? So the other
0: thing that comes to mind is crawfish bowls. Crawfish bowls are a social so, occasion. It's yeah. an event. Yeah. Um, How can you describe the food culture of New Orleans for our listeners? Like, I, I would say this about New Orleans food culture.
1: Mediocre food is spotted and goes away quickly. Uh-huh. So you, uh-huh. you know, I'm sure you and your listeners know the the numbers behind the the failure of new restaurants within the first year and then the first oh, five yeah. years. It's it's not oh, yeah. it's not a high success rate. Right. But here especially, if your food is bland or mediocre, uh-huh. you know, people will forgive service a little bit because we're sort of a laissez-faire city right. and everyone's kind of like, be nice yep. or leave. We're going to do that. Yep. But if your food mm-hmm. is just middling or fair, no right. way. There, there's right. got to be either something incredibly interesting or tasty, or just really executed well, um, okay. in terms of the restaurant scene right now, um, you know, it's, it's one of these things where you'll get Vietnamese food, you'll get sushi fusion, you'll get Chinese, you'll get Mediterranean, you'll get Lebanese. Um, there's a new restaurant. That's Indian, uh, Lufu yeah. let us feed you. I haven't been there yet, but it's on okay. my radar okay. on the other end of the spectrum. There, I was talking to a, a medical student the other day. There is an Iraqi shawarma um, wow. market. It's called shawarma on the go. But wow. like all things in Louisiana, the reason you know it's legit, it's been there for more than a decade, and right. it's in the back of a gas station. Right. If it's sort of like off the beaten path in the back of a gas station, you know it's legit.
0: Now, if if, I, if like uh, it's my first time visiting New Orleans, how, how would you advise a visitor um, eat as a first-time visitor?
1: Let me say this: you you have to try to get some red beans and rice in you. Yeah, you. I mean, if if you haven't been to uh-huh. Dookie Chase, you got to try their uh, fried chicken over there. It's it's amazing, phenomenal. If if you've got the coin and if you're ready to to spend money and travel, Commander's Palaces
0: uh, a staple. They're incredible. Okay. What oh, what are some yeah. of the cl- classic dishes that one should try? Like you you mentioned the the beignets um yes what what else like what what else should what are some of the classics that people should try other than
1: the yeah other than the fried chicken and the um uh red beans and rice uh, jambalaya
0: to me you know
1: i've i've been to spain i've traveled to spain i've had paella in spain i've had paella from fancy caterers from spain in los angeles and in new york jambalaya is better and that's, uh, like, my hot take. And people uh, are going to hate on me for that. But at the same time, like, yeah. you have food influences from Africa, yep, you know, yep, transatlantic yep. slave trade, right? The the legacy, the terrible legacy that has been turned around by the natives of New Orleans yep. and using some of that flavor into jambalaya. If you can right. get a good cup of gumbo, and again, oh, gumbo, amazing. African origin word, yeah, using um okra african origin crop like you ha- if you wow. don't if you don't pay attention to the black roots and the african roots of the food in new orleans and you don't eat that kind of thing you're Got missing out and Got that's it. that's Got your it. fault as a tourist like do your homework yeah you know yeah. check this stuff out everyone is nice inviting friendly in new orleans but like please 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 pay attention to where the food comes from, and that'll, that'll give you a hint as you're eating it as to what, my God, why does this taste so good? And it's because it is the melange of Native American influence. Like crawfish is a Native American food, right? Like they've been doing it for thousands of years and they showed some, you know, French, uh, French Canadian yeah. or Acadian trappers like, hey, you should guys, you should probably try to eat some of this stuff. And then it kind of took off from there. Um, and then the seasonings and everything come from Africa and right. it's, it, it's incredible. So that, that food melange is is what needs to be tried
0: out. Yeah, from what I understand, like a lot of the amazing food in New Orleans was influenced historically by the slave trade and, yep. you know, the flavors that were brought into, you know, the Delta and the West, I mean, the South, um, sort of what was in the French. There was also the French influence, I believe. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the French cooking techniques with the spices from Africa and also the Caribbean. And I guess now also newly new immigrants who established homes there just became this fertile ground for all this delicious food to to develop. I guess now you're older, you have children. And I think like just over the past decades, we have we've gained more information about um the science of nutrition. There's been fad diets that came and went. Some came back. There's more advanced sort of dietary recommendations and things of that sort. I mean, this is kind of like in the food policy level, um, which doesn't really translate down into you know the everyday culinary delicious level. Do you think like you know now that you're a professional doctor and you have children, um, has your ideas of how to eat changed or do you think you still sort of utilize all the stuff that you um, absorb when you were growing up and kind of still explore the food terrain in the same way?
1: Great question. So I'm gonna disclose here, uh, I sit on the board, I'm part of the board of directors for the American Academy of Neurology. And literally last week, I was at um, the Brain Health Summit in Washington, D.C. So this is Uh something put on by the American Academy of Neurology. And one of the things at the table that I moderated, you know, I was talking to people from various organizations nationally, um, what are ways that we can promote brain health? And that kind Uh of gets to that question of, like, what is healthy from not only a doctor's perspective, but also from nutritionists, from physical therapists, from athletic trainers, et cetera, et cetera. And... The idea is, you know, the diet that I'm supposed to endorse is the Mediterranean diet. Not everyone has access to it. There's inequities within food. People live in food deserts. People aren't able to go to the store and, and, and buy, you know, healthy, colorful foods or whatever. So the idea that I, I think is easier to say, harder to implement is if that there is a variety of color in the food that you eat mm, um, yeah. And, yeah, there that. Yeah, and there is moderation. Yeah. And there's moderation of the portion. And then there is a balance of physical activity. Then I worry less about, well, you know, we, we got to have a low fat or a low sugar or, or whatever kind of yeah. thing. Food is, yeah. food is food. Food is fuel. It can right. be delicious. Um, but, you know, I try to impart upon my kids. I try to tell my patients if all of your food is the same shade Right, and I'll I'll give a typical Southern Louisiana dish. If you have fried chicken, fried shrimp, um, fried rice, and mac and cheese, that's all within the sort of same color palette. Yeah. So that's probably not healthy. Right, but if you can have a little bit of salad, if you can have some fruit, if you can moderate how much fried chicken you have, you can moderate the fried shrimp. If you can have a little bit of hit of mac and cheese, but not like yeah. a huge plateful. That like weighs down the paper plate at a cookout and like makes a fold <laughs> in bed and break in half, then we're closer to probably what's a good thing. Yeah. And then if you don't eat so much that you can't like get up and run around with the kids, then you're also in a good way, right? So it's that combination of thought of food yeah. as fuel and then able to do exercise and have fun. Um, yeah, yeah. And then of course, you know, New Orleans, everybody jokes. Uh, it's it's the sort of drinking capital of of the southern part of the United States, reducing right. alcohol intake to a moderate level. Yeah. You know, it's it's just one of those things. That it, it, it's again, I know it's easier said than done, but trying to preserve how healthy your brain is through diet and exercise ends up being a very powerful
0: tool. Now, do you think the the board or sort of the medical establishment kind of is on board with that way of thinking, or are they still? debating what is the best lifestyle eating to endorse
1: well i mean again officially you know they they want people to be eating leaner meats less fatty heart healthy foods (laughs) yeah and and, you know i i get what a top-down leadership structure would be so i'll say that this member will go unnamed but there's someone who sits on the board as the future president of the american academy of neurology who if she sees me drinking a diet coke she's coming after me right <laughs> but in my mind a diet coke's better than a regular coke uh-huh. um yeah yeah I, I i have over time tried to moderate and i'm not just reaching for a diet coke every chance i get i'm drinking more water and, and all that so yeah thank you natalia dr roast i appreciate you for right. coming after me and, and making me have healthier ways thank you uh it, i'll probably live longer because of it yeah. at the same time cool. though. You know the the number of neurons and the gustatory cells and the taste and the smell and everything is hardwired into us. We're supposed to like food, so to deny ourselves yeah. tastes and flavors in moderation,
0: I don't know yeah. if that's a, a good pathway to success. You know, when I was um, in school studying um, kind of food culture and different diets around the world, as you mentioned the Mediterranean diet, one thing I came across is the something called the french paradox uh which is like french people they smoke they drink wine they eat cheese they have full gras they have their steaks they have all this like super rich food um but yet they're able to their health indicators are way better than the americans in terms of you know weight and cholesterol and all that stuff um and it's it's called the paradox because you know, in America, according to dietitians, you should stay away from all those things. It sort of calls into question, like, how do you enjoy all this amazing food in a way that can also sustain, you know, health, good, healthy indicators.
1: So I'm going to say one word that is controversial and might make people want to light me on fire. (laughs) The word and the problem in America is capitalism. Universal health care is something that the French have access to in modern days. It helps them continue to meet those great metrics. Yeah, and yeah. then the other thing is the way they view food there is not as a commodity on a shelf that needs to be packaged, branded, colorized, totally. Totally. processed, totally. filled with, you know, your Campbell noodle soup has so much. It's what 50 plus 60% of your total daily sodium intake that the French don't do that. Yeah. Um, they, they also don't, work insane hours like we work in america they don't work to to break themselves they work with enough time to come home and make that french onion soup from scratch rather than from a can thereby saving themselves you know 500 milligrams of sodium which from a from a heart health and brain health standpoint salt is going to get you like we love salt it's good for us in moderation but if you have 500 extra milligrams of salt in there and you do that once a week for 10 years you know that's yeah. that's a heart attack. That's a stroke. Not not to be too morose, but that's that's yeah. a problem. It's
0: a systemic problem. No, and I, don't I think I, it's an individual thing. I think you really hit hit it on the nail. Like I think capitalism and the food industry's freedom to invent all this packaged processed food and sell it to us. Um, well, well, well let,
1: let me say this. I'm friends with enough chefs that I don't think any of them would consider what we can buy at the stores exactly. good food. I exactly. think they would rather teach people how to cook for themselves or have people come eat with them than say, hey, let's go pick up a box of freeze-dried, whatever, whatever.
0: Yeah. No, I, th- I like um, one of my professors, Marian Nessel. she's like a well-known nutritionist. She always made the comment that like half the cereals that are being sold to kids as breakfast is basically like, is basically eating cookies for, for breakfast <laughs> if you look at well, the nutritional and, composition and, and i'll say this if you follow uh,
1: american franchises the reason that subway can't get a franchise in france is because of the sugar content because really? then they can't call what they wrap their sandwiches bread uh-huh. right it becomes pastry because of the high sugar content yeah so along the same lines of american cereal same sure. thing with american bread That's why the next time somebody goes to France and you see a subway, look at the fine print and see what they're calling what they're wrapping
0: their sandwiches in. The French won't call it bread. Too much sugar. That's so interesting. Wow. Do you think like in New Orleans, um, food, which is super good and decadent and delicious, do you think there's like efforts to make it healthier? Oh, no, not at
1: all. (laughs) <laughs> no. the 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 food in New Orleans is supposed to be delicious and make you fat and 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 part of the cultural reason for that goes back to carnival right so oh yeah you know the the idea of mardi Gras and you're supposed to literally like fatten up and then you have forty days and forty nights of Lent and this is the Catholic tradition, so this is Spanish influence, this is French influence for literally hundreds of years that's a everyone around no matter what socioeconomic strata you're supposed to eat as much as you can drink as much as you can then for 40 days and 40 nights basically fast and avoid red meat on fridays and you know not drink and all this stuff like it's that weird binge and purge cycle which right i like the food that's there but is that cycle healthy
0: Uh, probably not you know yeah well as as they they will probably say yolo you only live once (laughs) that's right that's right (laughs) Are there um, any other kind of food-related things that you like to share with the audience?
1: Sure. So, a guilty pleasure of mine and my kids, um, we've gotten so advanced in food, there's a show, Is It Cake?, uh, which is hosted by Mikey <laughs> Day <see> <laughs> uh, of yeah. SNL. My kids love that show. Um, <laughs> and it's very funny. And, and of course, this show comes from the Japanese show where they're very professional about like, you know, it, it's not just mundane objects. Like they'll build a whole room and half the room is fondant and cake. And the rest is like, it's a shoe or like a door handle, but they sort of don't know until they like bite into the shoe or door handle or telephone. Uh, right. And it comes here. Although obviously I don't, at this time, I don't remember the name of the Japanese show, but is it cake is the one that we've settled on here um, in terms of other, Good resources, like as mentioned before, the Mediterranean diet is a good one. But I think at the end of the day, whatever someone's food um, rituals, food process is trying to add in color to the palette of food yep. Yep. Um, and really establish kind of that rainbow of food and then moderation and then trying to couple it with exercise too. It is very good. Uh, just easier things to implement than, than sort of a strict, well, your macros say that your protein should be. 45 grams for the day. In fact, no, some people have the discipline to do it. Fantastic for them. Uh, It's hard for a day-to-day person to do.
0: You know, and when it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because when in my professional work, um, we have to set menus for uh, feeding programs of the city. And it really boils down to looking at, you know, proteins, you know, on a molecular level and to look at food on a molecular level is, um it leads to some interesting menus because it's not like a you don't look at the food as a whole you know you look at it
1: you're looking at a budget of fats and carbohydrates and 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 protein and, and all that yeah so that ends up i i see how that can be limiting in frustrating ways
0: yeah and and kind of deliciousness is out of the equation so which is hard,
1: right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, one one common food item that I think uh, makes any any meal shine is kimchi. Like, where does kimchi fall on on that metric, on that
0: math? And the answer is fermented foods traditionally don't, and, and, um, and, which is and, hard. And that's another question I think about: how can food policy be inclusive of so many foods Absolutely. from other cultures? Yeah. Most often than not, things like kimchi can't be you know, won't pass the test of, you know, food policy. And uh, and the other thing too, like if you, if you want to say, well, if somebody's
1: like, well, kimchi's weird, then uh, okay. What's a more traditional American thing given our huge swath within the Midwest of America, German population, sauerkraut, sauerkraut also doesn't pass the sniff test in terms yeah. of caloric intake and benefit. However, fermented foods are good for gut health. It's totally. been proven again and again, totally. but how do you quantify that and put that into food policy your guess is better than mine because you're an expert, but I, I don't know. I, I think that having fermented foods in, in a regular diet is probably something that we all need to do because that's I just think, how our gut works.
0: I mean, that's part of the reason why I created this podcast, because to explore people yeah. from all across America in their everyday lives, experience food and nutrition in very different ways. That's completely outside of what you know current food policy dictates
1: right um, and like where does mole fit into
0: food policy oh yeah right wow. and, mole, oh and mole is incredible talk about a, a oh bunch of flavor like holy yeah. cow yeah great thank you so um i will put links in the show notes thanks for jose for taking the time out of his busy life uh to share with us Can, can you explain for the listeners what the crawfish boil experience entails? Because
1: oh my you know, god, okay, so crawfish boil they're... is yeah. If, if you don't know what a crawfish is, I say crawfish. Other people say crayfish or crawdads. Uh-huh. Um, they're they're a small, literally bottom feeding crustacean. Um, yeah. They live in rice rice uh, swamps, not swamps, uh, rice paddies. I'm sorry, in Louisiana. Uh-huh. But yeah, you you harvest the crawfish. You put the water on you know several hours because it takes a big a pot literally like you can't if you're doing it right it's a pot that you can't wrap your arms around right okay it's a huge of water pot. It's, okay. it's a massive pot okay. on, a, on a propane propane tank boiler you season the water you use if you're doing it right you use okay. a dry season you use uh, uh an oil-based seasoning as well there are various people who do it various ways but the long story short is you put the crawfish in the pot and you boil them you can throw in other fixings again this is different per chef uh okay. some people throw an artichoke heart some people throw an andouille sausage some people throw in citrus some people oh, throw in pineapple amazing mushrooms yeah. uh all sorts of other stuff and you bring it to a nice boil and then you take it off and some people so there's another chef i know isaac toops who's uh from southwest louisiana and he does it he sort of adapted his style over the years so he does like a vietnamese style which is incredible cool. so he'll Boil the crawfish in the in the water with the oil, and then he'll take it out and he'll put it in an ice chest to cool uh-huh. off. And then he'll add the dry seasoning there. He'll also use uh yuzu seasoning Ooh, because yuzu okay. has that nice kind of lemony flavor. Oh yeah. Oh, um yeah. and he'll throw some lemongrass in there also for some different notes. And literally, if not himself, because he's a pretty strong dude, he'll take he'll get two people and shake the entire chest. So everything is covered with sort okay. of butter, yuzu. lemongrass sometimes you know the the dry seasoning and all that and then the crawfish i mean you can't help but the shells are covered the butter seeped in you've already got the seasoning from the water and i mean again if your lips aren't on fire and you're not sweating a little bit wow uh, you don't know what it's like to truly have a a wonderful crawfish boil. you you really have to sort of embrace the oh my gosh this is like too much